From the PA Foundation, I'm James Milward. This is Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. The Cleveland Clinic defines mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, as a condition in which a person experiences a slight decline in mental abilities, like thinking and memory skills, compared to other people of their same age. Now, these changes are typically noticed by the person suffering them and the people around them, close family and friends, but they may not be severe enough yet to completely uproot their daily life or their normal activities. However, these symptoms are often a red flag or indicator of more severe cognitive impairment later in a person's life. And there are often steps that a patient can take to manage or slow down the impact with treatment. Here to talk to us a little bit more about mild cognitive impairment are two incredible PAs. We have Cindy Beam, PA in the Department of Neurology at Duke University Medical Center, and Rebecca Loomis, PA and Director of Inpatient Advanced Practice Providers at the Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Cindy and Becca, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having us. Glad to be here. Now, before we dive into mild cognitive impairment, I always like to ask my guests, how did you make your way into the field of medicine to decide to become a PA and ultimately land in your specific field? I have actually always had an interest in medicine um, since I was a child. Um, I had a little aversion to blood (laughs) for a bit growing up, but managed to get over that over the years. had wanted to go into medicine actually to be an MD, but I had met my first husband and we wanted to you know, have a life and plan a family. And it seemed that being a PA would be actually the better option for me in terms of having a better work-life balance. Um, I've worked with patients who are 65 and older the majority of my career prior to uh, being a PA. Actually, I was a physical therapy tech. And this was the population that that I worked with, um, as well as some other positions that I had had. And I was urged by um, different people that I came across in that age group to to please consider going into geriatrics in some manner because they needed people who would be advocates for them and who were compassionate and, and would listen and and realize that they don't want to feel like they're being dismissed and that they're they're being heard. So I started out in internal medicine doing exactly that and moved to North Carolina. And at that time, um, an opportunity opened up at Duke University in behavioral science, and it just was a perfect fit. It was a great transition from what I was doing in Virginia to working with this patient population with cognitive impairments. For me, many members of my family uh, were in nursing, which sparked my interest in medicine. I was a U.S. Navy hospital corpsman. I specialized as a surgical technologist in the Navy. During my time in the Navy, I was exposed to the PA career field, and I felt that the PA career path would allow me to build upon my healthcare knowledge and experience. I worked in surgical subspecialties most of my 17 years as a PA. Then in 2016, I joined the Cleveland Clinic in a leadership role, building upon my military leadership experience. 
And in my current role, I oversee a large group of APRNs and PAs in many neurological subspecialties, including the Lou Ruval Center for Brain Health, where our providers treat cognitive disorders, including mild cognitive impairment. I think that's great. I think hearing the backgrounds and where people come from and why they choose their specialties is very interesting to me. Um, I think the point about the work-life balance of being a PA was very poignant as well. It's something we don't talk a lot about, and not really the topic of our current conversation, but something that is worth mentioning that that is a very, very um, beautiful part of being a PA is that we can find that work-life balance, still work in medicine, and still help out so many patients. Now, reverting back to our mild cognitive impairment, so for our listeners, could you give us give us a current definition of what exactly is mild cognitive impairment? So it's when we see someone having cognitive or memory problems more than a person should be having at their age. Not to the point of dementia, but some real memory difficulties that may in fact be disease related. Age-related changes that we would expect to see would be overall um, slowness of thinking, more difficulty with multitasking, um, retaining information, uh, word finding, walking into a room, forgetting why you walked in there. These are things that you would expect to see as people age. Um, However, in a person who has cognitive impairment, this is much more pronounced they may not recognize it themselves. It may be you know, friends, family, or even coworkers if they're still working that point these things out to them. But rapid forgetting, um, difficulty uh, be able, being able to navigate, um, you know, finding finding their way around what used to be familiar territory. Um, you know, when they're out driving a vehicle, for instance, um, problem solving, uh, sometimes word finding difficulties that are more pronounced. Or, or even having behavioral and mood changes that are outside of what you would expect to see for social norms. Now, I think that part is so interesting that a lot of these differences in the mild cognitive impairment are very subtle. And I think many of us, when we're talking to our patients, they will attribute any sort of symptom or deficit to just, this is, I'm just getting older. I see that even in cardiac surgery when our patients slow down and they're having dyspnea, shortness of breath, they're they're having Mm -hmm. chest pains, and they're just blaming it on being older. When there's something real that's underlying that, that we need to be aware of. Now, so for providers, what would you say are some of the major red flags of mild cognitive impairment that let us know that this patient is on a decline that's not normal? So when a person is starting to have more difficulty with day-to-day activities, uh, so for instance, if someone is still still working, maybe maybe not yet retired, and they're starting to have more difficulty on the job to the point that you know, maybe their supervisors and coworkers are are noticing these things, having difficulty staying on top of managing their finances, paying, you know, the household bills, reconciling their accounts, shopping and meal preparation, um, you know, maybe forgetting to eat meals in the first place or having more difficulty in following the steps in preparing a, a meal that maybe they've 
made for many a year and they're starting to leave ingredients out. They may leave the stove on and walk out of the room and forget they have something cooking on the stove or even forget to turn the stove off. You know, being able to manage their medications if they're starting to miss medications or even in some cases accidentally taking more than they should be because they're not able to stay on top of that anymore. Often family members are the first to notice the changes, such as maybe patients uh, asking the same questions in repetition, where they lose their sense of direction in a familiar place. They may have confusion with person, place, or time, or have difficulties with those activities of daily living. Of course, the patients themselves may notice the change, but again, it's often the people around them who notice those changes first. Uh, and that that is so true. I think it's so interesting that it's usually the family members that bring it up first, and and then the patient will start to talk about the difficulties, and then uh, the realization begins. Now, as clinicians, how can PAs and other providers uh, help screen and test for mild cognitive impairment? I know there are multiple exams and things that people use: the MMSC, the Mini Metal Stannis exam. There's the clock drawing test. There, there are multiple tools out there, but what do you both feel are the most effective, uh, the most reliable tests that providers can use currently? Well, the first thing is to ask the patient and their caregiver about the patient's memory and cognition. There are formal questionnaires that can be used, such as the AD8 or the MCI questionnaire, and there are, uh, are other screening tools as well. If the patient does screen positive for myocognitive impairment, it should be followed by an assessment tool such as the mini-COG or the mini-mental uh, status exam. In most settings, you know, unless, of course, you're, you're specializing in cognitive impairment, you're probably going to want to do something more along the lines of the mini-mental or the MOCA because you want to do something that's going to, of course, not take a lot of time, but is going to be useful in alerting you if there's mild cognitive impairment at play. The MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, is more sensitive to mild cognitive impairment, and it can pick up more subtle changes than the mini mental exam can. Both of them take about 10 minutes. There are 30-point questionnaires um, that can be done pretty quick and easily. Also, and using those in conjunction with functional scales, um, some of them tend to be a little too complex and, and um, involved, I think, in a, a primary care setting. So maybe looking at something like we use the functional activities questionnaire, which is a 30-point scale. And actually, in our clinical setting, we've adapted it to a 36-point scale um, to include daily activities such as bathing, dressing, toileting, feeding, the ability to be left alone for any length of time. Typically, the 30-point scale is going to give you a better idea of instrumental activities of daily living. So, you know, finances, shopping, um, being able to prepare a meal, current events, being able to follow written and verbal language, etc., One of the pitfalls I think that can be run into with the cognitive testing is if you have an individual who has a higher level of education or higher level of intelligence because that person is going to have much more cognitive reserve and you're not going to see necessarily drastic changes on 
cognitive testing, such as uh, the mini metal or the mocha. I've had patients come in who, uh, for instance, I, I have had a literal rocket scientist who has come into our clinic, had two PhDs, and he scored a 30 out of 30 on the mocha, yet I'm hearing a completely different story from his partner who had come and, and of course would be the main caregiver who is seeing daily changes in terms of, you know, their functional abilities that just don't match what I'm seeing on, on a mocha. So in situations like that, I think it's best to make a referral to have a full neuropsychiatric evaluation formally done. I think that's going to be more sensitive in a situation like that. I think that's great. And, and you both actually responded with a very important point that was talk to the patient. Right, like they, a lot of these tests can tell us great things, but that actual assessment of sitting down face to face with your patient and really trying to understand where they're at uh, is so important when we're trying to help these help these people. Now, many of our PAs are listeners across a variety of specialties. Uh, we all manage different chronic conditions. And are there some consistent contributing factors from other conditions that may lead someone to developing mild cognitive impairment that we should be aware of? Absolutely. Um, cardiovascular risk factors play a part. If a person has had history of seizures, head trauma, um, genetics, if there's been a, a family history of cognitive impairment or dementia, um, aging, over the age of 65, the risk for cognitive impairment doubles every five years. Over the age of 85, that risk is going to be one in three. So it, that certainly plays a part. Sleep apnea, while sleep apnea in and of itself isn't a cause of dementia, it can certainly make it worse. And so, you know, untreated um, sleep apnea is, is going to muddy the picture. Uh, environmental or work exposures to chemicals and pesticides, prior drug and alcohol use, depression uh, is, is a big factor that, you know, left untreated, that's absolutely going to affect someone on, on a, a cognitive level with their focus and their concentration and ability to be able to recall information and, and again, muddy the picture. Um, we're finding more and more that sleep deprivation can play a significant role in chronic stress as well. Although mild cognitive impairment isn't dementia, roughly 15% of patients with MCI go on to develop dementia every year. According to the Lancet Commission on Dementia Prevention, there are 12 modifiable risk factors that contribute to nearly 40% of all dementias. These are poor education in early life, hearing loss, traumatic brain injuries, hypertension, significant alcohol use, obesity, smoking, depression, social isolation, sedentary lifestyle, air pollution, and diabetes. Now, from what I'm hearing from both of you, it sounds like a lot of the things that really contribute to mild cognitive impairment Unfortunately, in our culture, there are a lot of patients that don't have this information, and this is oh, the way they live contributes to what is going on later in their life. So in a, in a very simple setting, why do you feel it is important to screen early 
um, and assess early on these patients? And at what age do you feel it would be appropriate? While there is no way to definitively, of course, prevent mild cognitive impairment or dementia or, or stop it from occurring if, if it is going to, there are things that someone can do that can help to lessen their risk for cognitive impairment and at least try to slow the process down. So being able to assess early is going to allow for intervention for um, patients to be able to, one, um, do advanced planning, have financial and medical powers of attorney in place, get a good family support system in place, and to be able to try to change any modifiable factors that have that effect. The aforementioned factors that we spoke of before, so staying on top of of blood pressure, um, uh, your lipids, your weight, mood, sleep, modifying anything that you possibly can, exercising on a regular basis, which is the number one way to slow down cognitive decline. And then also, you know, trying to make things safer. Do you want to intervene before it gets to the point that someone is not safe to drive and they're out getting lost in the community and then putting themselves and other persons on the road at risk? Being at risk for fraud, uh, people are taken advantage of every day, you know, by text messages that we're all routinely getting on our phones, emails that we're routinely getting that seem legitimate, but to a person who has some cognitive impairment, their judgment may not be up to par. And of course, they're making themselves vulnerable to financial loss or worse. Mild cognitive impairment is an issue for patient safety, and it it also affects their quality of life. It it takes away from their ability to do daily activities. Can can this patient, can they remember how to cook safely, how to perform self-care, how to drive? Now, I can imagine that when you are talking to your patients about this, especially in the initial diagnosis, Right. This can be very stressful, very difficult. Uh, there's multiple you know, responses, potentially denial from a patient. How, is, how do you, have you found an effective or best way to let your patient know this is the diagnosis and where do we go from here? It can really be a, a difficult and a lengthy discussion and typically best to have this discussion with the patient in a is a separate appointment with a family member or caregiver present if, if possible. It's best to have that person who will be their, their caretaker going forward so you can have a discussion with both the patient and that caregiver so that they can have a, a good understanding of what the diagnosis is and what uh, the possible workup and treatment plan will be. Agreed. And, and it's really not an easy subject to approach most patients, when they come into the clinic, they're already on edge. They feel as though they're they're being judged by questions that are being asked. You want to do everything that you can to put that person at ease, because this is a very uncomfortable subject to to broach with them and their caregivers. So trying to trying to connect with them on some other level um, prior to having the conversation to have them let their guard down a little bit so they, they do feel more comfortable and, and have a better rapport with you. Um, 
asking simple questions without making them feel judged or attacked. Sometimes it's even helpful to, as Becca had mentioned, having separate appointments. We often have a, a point in time in in our visits where we'll have the caregiver even step into another room while maybe nursing is doing intake and going over medication lists and vitals, et cetera, um, to have the conversation with the caregiver to try to determine what might be the best way to approach someone who might be defensive about their memory issues or um, even in denial of the fact that they do have memory issues or not recognize it. So involving the family or the the specific caregiver who is with them often can help soften the reaction that you can elicit by having this conversation. I think those are both great suggestions here. Now, as a as a major part of any healthcare professional worth working with patients, the communication with our patient is important, but also the caregivers and family members becomes so important in this in this situation. In the case of mild cognitive impairment, how do you work with your patient's loved ones? Well, in in this type of situation, you pretty much have two patients. You have the patient and the caregiver. And often, because treatment and interventions are rather limited uh, with mild cognitive impairment and dementia, the care oftentimes is more for the caregiver and helping them to understand the changes that they're seeing in their loved one, what is happening, what to expect down the road, help connecting them with caregiver resources in the community, getting them in touch with support groups, making them aware of other resources that might be available to help in terms of of respite to give them a a bit of a break as well, because it it is very hard on the caregiver. So looking into things like day programs um, or in some cases, the PACE program would be very helpful or, or if even bringing in a companion into the home is a feasible option financially is a, a good way to help give some care to the caregiver because it's just someone that's going to come in and give um, both cognitive and social stimulation to the patient as well as help where necessary with ADLs and in some cases maybe even some light housekeeping and give some time to the caregiver to be able to do self-care or to be able to run errands if that's what they need to do. I agree with Cindy. We really try to help them by providing them those community resources and help them identify the, where the gaps are in, in their care plans and, and what is, is lacking that they need help with. Uh, they can get assistance with advanced care planning, obtaining power of attorney, setting up advanced care directives, and also getting that emotional support that they desperately need. Oh, that's great. And the, I think that the way our healthcare system has evolved, I think we have realized and utilized the family and the support system that that is for our patients in a, in a very great way recently. Um, now, when, when this diagnosis is first introduced to the patient, to the family, this can be, like we've said, somewhat 
difficult to accept and deal with, but what is, what is the first step for you? What comes next after the diagnosis? Well, first step is to try to determine what the underlying cause is. So, of course, you want to rule out any reversible causes. Um, so, metabolic and endocrine conditions um, such as uh, hypothyroidism, nutritional deficiencies, uh, having a space-occupying lesion, if there's depression or mood disorders that are present, of course, trying to optimize treatment where that's concerned. Um, if there's ongoing drug or alcohol abuse, um, getting the person the necessary help to help them to get into recovery. Also, maybe looking for, and this may really be more in line, of course, with referring to the specialist versus doing this in a primary care setting, but um, checking for biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease, um, which can be done through examining the cerebrospinal fluid uh, via lumbar puncture or a skin biopsy, which can help to determine whether or not Lewy body disease is present. Um, an MRI of the brain, you know, of course, looking for the space-occupying lesions. Is there evidence of cancer? Is there atrophy of the brain? All these things can help try to point you in the right direction for a definitive diagnosis. I appreciate what you said about um, using specialized caregivers because in certain circumstances here, PAs, one of our mantras of learning is that we have to know when something is beyond our scope. And I think that's true in any field of medicine because we all are so specialized now that utilizing people that are experts in this field is so important. A major reason why I appreciate both of you being here today. Now, this diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, it, it can be discouraging for patients and their caregivers. But what can you share with other PAs and providers that might help offer their patients more hope, more of a positive outlook? Although there's no way of reversing the mild cognitive impairment, it, it's something you can aim to raise their hope and slow down the progression of the impairment. As I agree. It's, it's important to offer as much hope as you possibly can and encouragement to the patient you know, making sure that they understand the importance of exercise and diet. Um, the latest recommendations for diet for a person who has cognitive impairment is um, the MIND diet, which is a combination of the Mediterranean and DASH diets, um, which is pretty powerful and can help to um, slow down progression. Social engagement, cognitive stimulation are very important. Um, you know, when there's social isolation and a person is not having engaging conversations and and learning new things, that puts them at risk for having a quicker decline. Um, encouraging people to maybe volunteer or take up a hobby um, is very helpful and gives them a purpose. You know, once people retire and they've worked their entire lives, you know, they're no longer having that daily interaction. And if they haven't planned ahead to have something to take the place of that job and have fulfillment, then, you know, of course, you can start to see um, depression and anxiety set in. You could start to see a quicker decline if cognitive impairment is going to be present. So trying to encourage them to do these things and, and give them the hope that 
they can take matters into their own hands to try to slow down the the rate of decline. Also trying to get family as involved in care as possible. We find that patients who have a good, strong family support network um, and stay active tend to be more successful and have that slower rate of decline. Now, the, the activity level you mentioned is interesting. Um, I remember reading things about how patients that would consistently read books had a much lower chance of cognitive decline versus people that watch TV consistently mm-hmm. in, in their evening practices of people who were reading and actively, if you will, working out the brain have a much lower chance of these things happening. Now, the one thing I was very interested in there is the diet. Now, how can you, how does the diet impact the progression of mild cognitive impairment? So, we know diet is very important, of course, in cardiovascular health, which directly impacts the brain um, and can, can certainly either cause cognitive impairment or if there is a neurodegenerative process present, worsen the situation. Historically, we've recommended the Mediterranean diet, uh, fish several times a week, lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, you know, if someone were having bread and pasta and things of that nature, using olive oil as a source of healthy fats for cooking, nuts and seeds for a good natural source of um, vitamin E. There was a, a study done in recent years where they combined that with the DASH diet, um, you know, basically low fat, low salt, low cholesterol, and including a glass of wine um, in this in the mind study. And they found that in this particular study, that people who adhered 100% to the diet had about a 53% reduction in their risk for Alzheimer's disease. People who stuck mostly to it, so maybe they didn't drink the wine, for example. Um, still had about a 35% uh, reduction in their risk for Alzheimer's disease. So while this won't stop this from happening, if it is going to happen, it's very powerful in helping to keep the body as healthy as possible, giving the brain the the nutrition that it needs to help slow this process down. That's that's so interesting. I, I appreciate that. Now, what would you want uh, both of you as far as PAs and future PAs to, and providers in general, right, to take away from listening to this? The earlier you're able to, to detect that there are deficits, the faster that we can put a care team together to intervene and to help with future planning and help determine is someone going to want to age in place. Do they feel that moving to a continuing care residential community is something that they would want to entertain, which provides different levels of care as as cognition continues to decline over time, helping to get appropriate persons appointed to help with financial matters and, and to make um, personal and medical decisions in the event that the person cannot do that. The earlier you're able to detect these changes, while a person has the cognitive ability to be able to make these choices, the better. For those who are in primary care, screen and assess your older adult patients for myocognitive impairment. 
those patients with the mild cognitive impairment, the assessment, the diagnostic workup, and development of an individualized neurorehabilitation program can be quite involved. So it may be prudent uh, for these cases to refer these patients to a specialist in geriatrics or in brain health. Those are both great suggestions. Um, and, I, and I know there is a lot of research that is developing that is ongoing regarding mild cognitive impairment and dementia and the, the continual decline there, ways to stop it. Now, are, are either of you familiar with any promising technology or treatment therapy that may support patients that have MCI in the near future or currently? So, yes, actually, there are there's a class of medications that is being vigorously uh, studied currently, uh, monoclonal antibodies um, that are intended to target beta amyloid plaques that develop in the brain to try to clear this buildup to either slow the progression of the disease process or possibly even stop it. Um, we have no disease-modifying treatments that are currently available with the exception of one that was approved last year but does require more research to determine um, long-term what the, the safety and the, the, the effects, effects are going to be on cognition and function. Um, these seem to be getting the the most buzz. There are three in development currently that are in phase three of their studies, uh, two of which are IV, one if, which would be the, the first that I know of that's been looked at that would be a subcutaneous infection um, that can help to to break up those plaques. And they're, they're looking fairly promising. Uh, one of those, we should hear something towards the end of 2022 regarding uh, the efficacy of, of that particular drug. There are also several current and upcoming clinical trials that are investigating wearables, phone apps and technology, wellness interventions, uh, and transcranial stimulation as treatments for mild cognitive impairment. I think that's great. This is an area of medicine where we're continually evolving, continually learning new things, and um, it, it's exciting to be on the forefront of that. Now, before we wrap up, do either of you have anything else you'd like to share about what you have going on in, in this world and your practice? I am excited to announce that the Cleveland Clinic, in partnership with the PA Foundation and the France Foundation, is currently working on a Davos Alzheimer's Collaboration Grant Project, uh, which is aimed to increase the rates of assessments for MCI in older adults. This project is geared toward primary care and will provide education and toolkits for MCI screening, assessments, and recommendations, which we'll share with the world. Here at Duke, we've recently received the designation in conjunction with UNC, the University of North Carolina, as an ADRC, um, Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. And we have several studies that are upcoming that we're very excited about with this designation. I think that's incredible. Both of you have deeply ingrained yourself into something that is a very difficult topic in medicine. It is one of those areas in medicine where we are trying to find solutions constantly. And I feel like the providers working there are very much pioneers in what they're doing. So I appreciate what you are both doing. I, I, I would like to thank you both for being here and sharing this information on mild cognitive impairment with us. 
And it is so important that we as providers become better equipped to provide the best patient care possible for our patients and their family members here. So I really appreciate you both shedding some light on this topic with us. Thank you very much for having us on. It's been a privilege to be able to talk about you know, what we're passionate about doing and and being able to educate the best that we can to help with early detection. It was my pleasure to be here that today. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to participate. And for all of our listeners, please visit the PA Foundation's website at pa-foundation.org for additional resources on this topic. And while you're there, you can catch up on all of our episodes of the Vital Minds podcast. Support for this episode of Vital Minds is provided by Azai. Until next time, I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds.